Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Hello there, fellow spooks. This is Emily Reidner, and I'm an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. This podcast is entirely listener-supported. If you'd like to hear more history and haunts every month, join me as an executive producer by checking out the Support the Show tab at historygoesbump.com. Thanks for listening. Ah, and remember, don't say I'll be right back. Stay spooky, and don't tempt the spirits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 220th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. Today's episode, we are heading out to another jail. This one is the Kentucky State Penitentiary. We're going to be joined by author and paranormal investigator Steve E. Asher. And he is going to share the history and hauntings of this place with everyone. Before we get into that, we do want to point you towards another podcast out there. And this one is co-hosted by one of our Spooktacular crew, Denise. Oh, very cool. This is Rachel and Brandy from over at History Dweebs have started the podcast Haunted Visions. So if you enjoy our podcast, you're probably going to enjoy that one as well. It's a lot of haunted history and lore and that kind of thing. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Bob. Hey, Bob. Aaron. Hi, Aaron. Isabel. Hey, Isabel. Jason. Hey, Jason. Caitlin. Hi, Caitlin. Sharla. Hey, Sharla. Lynn with an E at the end. Hello, Lynn with an E. Katrina. Hey, Katrina. Kate. Hello, Kate. Mubeen. Hi, Mubeen. Sally. Hey, Sally. Sharon. Hi, Sharon. Rebecca. Hi, Rebecca. Helen. Hey, Helen. Topaz. Isn't that a great name? It is. Hello, Topaz. Monica. Hi, Monica. Melissa with one S. Hey, Melissa with one S. Susan. Hi, Susan. Melinda. Hey, Melinda. Chris. Hi, Chris. Kathy. Hey, Kathy. And then we have two Sarahs. And Denise, usually we throw in their initial for their last name to differentiate who they are, but they both have an H last name. So welcome to Sarah Hollingsworth. Hello, Sarah Hollingsworth. And Sarah Haywood. And Sarah Haywood. You can't get names much closer than that. No, we can't say... And welcome to Sarah H. Squared. And they both spell their Sarah with an H, too. Way to go, girls. And now, this moment, Naughty. Today's moment in oddity was suggested by Shelby Hammond. Some people may not be aware that a tomato is not actually a vegetable. It was declared to be one in the courts in 1893... But botanically, the tomato is a fruit, more specifically classified as a berry. When the tomato finally made its way to Europe, many Europeans associated it with poisonous plants like nightshade and mandrake. The tomato plant is actually part of the nightshade family, Solanaceae. 
German folklore claimed that witches used these plants to summon werewolves. The old German word for tomato was wolfersick. The tomato species name became Lycopersican escalentum in the 18th century, which literally means edible wolf peach. Many believe that Linnaeus chose this name because he was familiar with the legend about tomatoes being used to attract werewolves. During colonial times, tomatoes were used strictly as decoration because the colonists believed eating a tomato would turn your blood to acid. Farmers who tried to sell tomatoes in the markets had no luck convincing anyone to buy them. Perhaps that is why the lore then switched to large red tomatoes being able to scare evil spirits away. People took to placing them on windowsills. Putting them on the hearth was thought to bring prosperity. So the next time you eat a tomato sandwich, now you know that there's a lot of fun lore connected to them, and that certainly is odd. Grab your slippers, hot chocolate, flashlight, and maybe even that baseball bat. And now, this month in history. In the month of September, on the 2nd, in 1930, French aviators Dudonné Cost and Maurice Bellant made the first non-stop flight from Europe to the USA. Cost had set flight distance records before, and he was also a fighter ace during World War I. After the war, he flew in civil aviation, and by 1925, he was performing record-breaking flights. In 1929, he partnered with another record-breaking pilot, Maurice Ballant, and the two made an attempt to cross the North Atlantic Ocean westbound from Villa Couble near Paris to New York. Bad weather forced them back. They set off again on September 1st in 1930 in a Red Bruguette 19 aeroplane from Paris Le Bourget Field Aerodrome. They arrived at Curtis Field Aerodrome in Valley Stream, Long Island, New York after a 37-hour and 18-minute flight. An enormous crowd awaited them, including Charles Lindbergh and his wife. There was a ticker tape reception and a meeting with President Hoover on September 8th. An interesting side story involved the loss of their navigational map out the window while flying over Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Two children saw the map falling from the sky while they were watching for the flight to cross over their farm, and they retrieved it. They returned the map to Cost after he asked for its return through the media. The Kentucky State Penitentiary is known as the Castle on the Cumberland. The prison is perched along the Cumberland River and is Kentucky's oldest prison facility. Construction on the facility began in October of 1884, headed by Governor Luke Blackburn after the Kentucky legislature passed a bill authorizing the construction. The prison officially opened in 1889. The worst of the worst have found their way to this place, and male death row inmates have been housed here. And since 1911, 164 men have been executed at the penitentiary. Because of the deaths and the energy, the prison is reputedly haunted. The Kentucky State Penitentiary was meant to bring reform to the prison system. Life in prison before the 1880s was horrific. A study conducted at the original Kentucky State Prison found that 20% of inmates had pneumonia and 75% had scurvy. Descriptions in the study claimed that the jail had, quote, 
slime-covered walls, open sewage, and graveyard coughs, end quote. Denise, can you imagine? That would be not a very nice place to be. Approximately 70 of the 1,000 prisoners had died in 1875. The Kentucky State Penitentiary became the jail for executions, and Old Sparky took its first victim on July 8, 1911. That convict was a black man named James Buckner, who had been convicted of murder at Lebanon Marion County. The last execution was in 2002 by lethal injection. Steve Asher worked at the jail and has collected the stories of those who have experienced paranormal activity. Well, we are joined by Steve E. Asher. He is a paranormal researcher, a writer, and he worked for over a decade in law enforcement and corrections. And one of the places that he worked was the Kentucky State Penitentiary. And he wrote a book about his experiences there and the experiences of others. And that book is called Hauntings of the Kentucky State Penitentiary. And he's going to join us now to discuss the history and hauntings of what seems to be one of the most haunted jails in the country. How are you, Steve? I'm great. I appreciate you guys having me on tonight. So obviously you are interested in the paranormal since you researched it. Your experiences with the connection to the Kentucky State Penitentiary, is that what got you started in the paranormal or were you interested in it before that? No, I mean, it was a thing where growing up where I grew up, it's a small town of Princeton, Kentucky. It's I think it may be nine or ten thousand now. It's 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 come down a little bit and by a couple thousand since I was a small kid. But it's just like a lot of little small towns, you know, north, south, east, wherever. As a kid, you're either a sports kid, you know, studying to be work toward being a preacher, something like that, which is real big here, or you're just sort of a, an oddball kid. I was always big enough to play football, but it was never really my thing. I really loved reading books, you know, and and seeing you know like the old Hammer films and and I used to watch stuff like Creature Features that come out of Nashville. That we had a guy named Cecil DeCreep down there and The Count of Five, which was my two favorite hosts. Anyway, that hooked me when I was really young. And the fact that you can set a tone and scare people just with sounds and shots. You didn't even really have to even see the creature. It could scare you just knowing it's coming. So I went from that to started going to our public library here and started picking through the books, which is so funny because I was always sort of a little portly little kid with like a little chili bow haircut. So I was kind of like Pugsley Adams. Here I come rolling up and I'm like, hey, do you have anything on, you know, uh, demon possession, uh, ESP and uh, <laughs> things like that? And they're going... And they're because they're talking about, you know, like demons. And, oh, yeah, we got a in a religious. Center. No, no, no. I mean, like, you know, like the hierarchies of demons and stuff like that. I remember taking one of the – the, uh, they had a uh, research book. You couldn't check it out. And I remember photocopying like 14 pages of the uh, Catholic uh, rite of exorcism. And it showed <laughs> – and they're just looking at me like, what's wrong with this kid? That was just my thing, and it kept me from getting involved with a lot of darker stuff. And that's just where my interest lied. You know, I was just this geeky, quiet kid and that's just where I found my interest in growing up in western Kentucky and there's a lot of folklore and stories and wives tales and all that came into play and so you had to learn how to tell good stories that coupled with my interest and then in years later you know as I did start working in corrections I went to Kentucky State Penitentiary it was actually the second uh, facility I worked at and it was just a totally different game it's like going from uh, I don't know, like a very, very mild part of Chicago or something like that, and then going maybe to like the south side, you know, where it can be kind of rough sometimes. It was just a different animal, and the energy there was so different. I try not to sell anybody on this and that. I just know there's strange things out there. I've seen them. I've heard them. I've felt them. I've recorded them, and I don't think there's anything, anyone out there that can really say that they are an expert in anything like this because until you can go over and come back, we can't prove that. I agree. You have to be skeptical or 
that's not being a proper researcher. I like the fact that when I would interview people, I tried to add the history of the locations they're talking about. I tried to add the makeup of the person to not just, you know, this is John Doe, age 35, blah, blah, blah. I try to give you a little bit of a background on their personality, on how they are, things like that. So it's not just a like you're reading a cold case study. You actually get the human element to it. I've been lucky enough to do in doing this since about 2006 with the team at Caldwell County Paranormals because we're from Caldwell County. And we didn't want to, I don't want to call it ghost hunters because or our ghost hunting because we're not hunting anything. We're not bagging these guys. To me, if these are actually our human spirits, why would you want to do that? I wouldn't want somebody chasing my granny st- stuff or in a sack or something. You know, it'll just it's a thing like if you want to speak, if if you have unresolved issues, how can I help you? Is there something we can do? And if you don't want to talk to us, that's fine. We'll go. We've had very good luck. We've had very good interactions with people, and and I do think we've generally helped people. We've I mean we've also had stuff that it was just too hot for me to to handle. When I did start working at the penitentiary, that's when that really amped up because I'd never really been inside up to that point anywhere with that kind of activity. It was just sort of like, yeah, okay. It sort of put me back because I'm like, it wasn't like, oh, I don't know if I can work here. I'm just like, this is going to take some getting used to because this is just like on all night. Usually I would work a morning shift, which would be overnight, you know, midnight to whatever, because we have we have special needs children with epilepsy and CP. And, and a lot of times my, my wife would have doctor's appointments. So I would work at night. So no matter if it's in the afternoon, a day, I would always be home with the kids, you know, the other ones. So by working at night, you really encounter stuff. And I don't know if it's so much that it's more active. Just the world slows down overnight. No one wanted to talk about it. That was the thing. Anyone could have wrote The Haunted of the Kentucky State Penitentiary. The place has been up 150, 160 years at this point. So it's like anyone could have wrote this book, but they didn't because there's that no one wants to be the first one to step up with their hand and go, hey, yeah, I saw something because usually they think they'd be laughed out of the place. I never did that. That whole thing, you know, oh, you think I'm crazy? I said, who am I to say you're crazy? Tell me what you saw. Can I just ask a couple of things? Number one, I believe the prison is still open. And then number two, how long did you work there? I had worked at the penitentiary. Uh, my, my total time in corrections was 10 years. And that's not counting like a, a short stint as a jailer before I started working, uh, teaching life skills, especially needs adults, which is what I do now. It is still active. Uh, it's been up and going since, I believe, uh, 1886, I believe. It opened up on Christmas Eve of all days. Oh, my gosh. That's a great time to open it up. The town of yeah. Eddyville, where it's located, can you tell us a little bit about it? And how do they feel about having a supermax prison right there? It is one of those uh, banes and, and and boosts of the, the economy there. It is the standby. It has never shut its doors. It has only grown. Prisons usually go to smaller communities because most bigger towns don't want them. But for Edible, it was a blessing. What happened, we had a small town. See, Edible isn't Edible. All right, let me explain this. Edible that you know now, may have seen now, is not Edible. There's a great big body of water out front on uh, Cumberland, the Cumberland River, which is a man-made river when the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, come through and ran electricity through this part of Kentucky. They flooded the old town of Edible and also this, the old town of Katawa. And there are towns named after that now, but it's not the originals. But the people seem to, like I said, everyone either has a cousin, a brother, worked there, had someone worked there, had somebody in there. The uh, the prison just kind of runs like roots through everything. It's it's hard not to be within six degrees of somebody there, working there, live there, die there. My father, who's now passed, started there in the 1950s. He worked there during pretty volatile times, and he um, he left after a little bit under five years to become a cop uh, or a policeman over in Princeton, which there's only maybe 12, 13 miles separation between Edible and Princeton, and 
Edible used to be part of the county, which is Caldwell County, which is where Princeton's located. For the most part, people, like you said, you know, like I've said, it is what it is. It's it's a source of income, and they're pretty much always hiring because it's a it's it can be a very violent place, and nine tenths the the officers there are very professional. The old Edible was already there, and then they put the penitentiary up there. And then after they after the penitentiary was there, and they flooded the old town, the new town kind of grew around the prison and. The heart of the new town is, is is the penitentiary, so it's just got a different dynamic. Because I spoke to people who that were older and would tell me stories about old Edible and the old shops, and, and it was kind of like you know, well, that was just you know, a big house up on the hill. It's gained a different a different uh, notoriety now at this point. Because like I said, it's it's one of the oldest uh, facilities and one of the oldest buildings in the area, and, and and all that. And not to mention, it is Kentucky's only supermax. You know, with the electric chair for some that still can choose between that and lethal injection. And the fact that not only would Edible get the worst of Kentuckys, a lot of times they would farm out like gang members from other states, people that they're trying to get out of other prisons to await trial. So generally we would get like kind of the worst of the worst from all over the U.S. So now can you describe a little bit what the prison looks like for us? Obviously, we know it has a death row if it's got old Sparky still there, which amazes me that they still would use that. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like on the inside and, you know, what it was made out of, that kind of thing? The administrative building, there was cell house one, cell house two, which was all in uh, a series of three connected large stone buildings that looked just like a castle. It was some Italian uh, masons that had put it together. It was built on inmate labor, and they had quarried stone probably no further than 25, 30 miles from there, and they would bring it up the road, and they would drag it up because before, before a lot of this, there wasn't, there wasn't the flooded-out area yet, and they would have to have the guys basically pull these big winches and draw it up. To, I mean, like something you'd see, like they're making pyramids, and they would literally have to drag and pull under manpower these gigantic you know, 12 by whatever chunks of uh, limestone. And anyway, so that the first three buildings look like that. But as time goes, they add new buildings. They change the laws and of how big the cell's got to be. So then old cell one house, cell, cell house one, cell house two becomes administ- more administrative buildings and officer buildings and stuff. And then so they put three cell house, which is a segregation unit. That is where old, old Sparky is housed. There's a lot of stories there. You know, there's a cutting ward, there's suicides, there's murders, there's rapes, there's all kinds of stuff. And, of course, the electrocutions. Four cell house, which is a... What they call a GP or general population is just a regular cell house. But at one time, there was Walk 20, which is actually River Walk 20 because it faces the river, was the old death row. And then you have five cell house, six cell house, and then you have some more seg units and things like that. It's its own little world. You know, it's got the mail service. It has the kitchen area. You have a commissary where you can go buy whatever you need to. You've got showers if you want to go take showers, you know, because most people can't take showers on their walks. That's for a handful of people, and that is a very big luxury. Most men take showers together, and, you know, you can only imagine stuff that happens sometimes. They have a great big walking track. They have a great big bed or like uh, like hand court track. So there's a lot of that stuff going on. There's a legal library. I mean, everything that you would think of. I mean, if you've seen stuff like Alcatraz and Shawshank Redemption, you know, that big flat concrete areas, everybody, I mean, they don't wear pinstripes anymore. I think they got rid of those in the 50s. You know, it's pretty much khakis for everybody. They, they have like a general walking area. They have a general spot for, you know, where they can go to the gymnasium. They have basketball games. They've got all kinds of different stuff like that. They've got, well, they used to have free weights, but they've had several murders with the free weights. So they went to the non-free weights, you know, where it's got like the rubber pieces, you know, or where you like bow flex and stuff. Some murders and, with the free weights. So they would just be out working out and all of a sudden somebody just often kills somebody. 
Yeah, just you know, smash your head like like a potato. Yeah, that's just. I mean, I'm sorry to be gr- to be gruesome, but it's just that's as sugar coated as I can get with it. Wow. I I went through because working midnights, you get the opportunity to do a lot of stuff because a lot of times the the yard is shut down. So the guys are in their cell houses. And sometimes if I wasn't working in a cell house, I would get the chance to go out and use a metal detector to sweep. And you would find old, what they call stickers or, or you know, sieves and stuff, homemade knives, uh, all kinds of stuff, old homemade tattoo guns, different things that people would buried somewhere to come get. And either they, something happened to them or they moved on or they just left it. Steve, you had said that you have this easy way about you to talk to people and Earlier, you were explaining you'd just be sitting down to eat or whatever with somebody and they would start telling you their stories. How would that go about happening that, you know, people would just plop down at lunch and then be like, you know, this crazy thing happened to me. Would you ask them about it or would they know that you were interested in it so they knew it was kind of safe to talk to you? It was like one of these guys, one of these deals, like almost like a mafia deal. We have a friend. I have, we have a mutual friend. And then he vouches for you. You're okay. It's very, it's very close like that. That thin blue line stuff is that's real. And it took a while for some of the old timers to go. Yeah, Asher's okay. You know, what I mean, you know, somebody's like, well, I hear he's like he's into ghosts and all this mess. And, ah, he's not like creepy like that. He just, it's an interest. You know, like you guys, some of you guys like duck hunting. He he likes researching this stuff. It just always had an interest. And then that's when every, you know, almost everybody would go. You know what? I don't believe in that crap, quote unquote. But there was this one time. I was at my desk and, and this coach will hit whatever and the lights flickered out. Maybe it's no more than that. Or, you know, I was hearing somebody in the office or something in the officer bathroom. I would go in there and the toilet was flushing, but there was nobody in there. And then they look behind them. I think they see a shadow and they run down there and there's nobody there. Relatively benign stuff, which, I mean, that that's there is enough to freak a lot of people out. I was there probably going on probably a year before anyone would actually share stories with me. And a lot of these, the old timers were like, when I hired in, were older guys, ex like Vietnam era type guys, you know, the whole thing of going uh, six months to a year, tell me your name up to then, just don't bother me because you probably won't be here in six months, which was true. We we, we burnt through people like uh, Corkwood. Once again, they saw you did your job, you didn't start trouble, you weren't bringing stuff in, you weren't taking stuff out. Then once the conversation started about, you know, because I would just tell some of the old timers, like, I've been on some cell houses and I've had stuff walking up, slamming up steps. I've had stuff moved around. I've I've been pushed by stuff. That's nothing. That, that's nothing there. Unseen, you know, for like unseen hands kind of slide down the back of your head. Crazy, you know. You look around. There's no cobwebs. There's no nothing. There's no. There's no cells with people in them. Just strange stories like that. And after a while, they would kind of say, "Well, I'll tell you what. You're not nuts because I've seen similar things." And once you've gained their trust, then that's really when the floodgates open. I couldn't say anything in front of those guys, but let me tell you what I saw. And there was a lot of that. It was that very. It was sort of a um, weird, unspoken thing for a long time. Well, I wrote down my different little things that I've learned from people and experiences that I had. And I shared it with a, a friend, of the, friend of the time who was a writer. And he said, um, do you have any more of these? And I was like, I mean, they're all up here, but I can put them down. He said, do you mind if I show this to somebody? You know? And I said, who? He said, well, my editor. I said, does he need a laugh? He says, no, no, just work with me. And I said, okay. So anyway, I didn't hear from him for about a month. And he said, hey, um, I need to talk to you, man, uh, about that book. I said, what book? He said, the, the book you're writing. I said, I'm not a writer. I'm just a dad. He says, no, no, but work with me. I showed my editor, and he thinks this would sell. He thinks it's interesting. There's no book been written about it. And I said, well, the only problem is that I'm not a writer. I'm a West Kentucky, honestly, poorly educated guy. And uh, 
you know, I had to educate myself on a lot of this. Just, no, I said, but the meat, the meat of it is there. Yeah, we got to work on a little bit of the structure. We got to do this and that. And he really gave me a crash course on a lot of the journalism stuff that I missed out in college at the time, which, I mean, my college work is in criminal justice, which goes really well for gridding out an investigation. It goes really well for keeping up, triplicate with everything about where everybody was, how everybody was, when everything happened, and all that. And I said, can you get me 65,000 words? I'm like, I mean, I can try. So it actually went to the point of going, oh, well, let's submit it. Okay, they want to kick it back, you know, do a little little slight re-edit that, that happens with books to the point where it was like, well, no, put it out. And I'm like, it won't happen. It just won't happen. I'm not that guy. It's not going to happen. And then once it actually was put out, it was sort of like, oh, crap, it's out. I can't take it back. I can't add to it. I can't edit it anymore. I thought I would have a crap storm because I am from a little southern town. So I thought I would be having church groups outside of my house with pitchforks. You know, I just thought it was going to run me out of town. But they didn't do that. A lot of the officers, especially the new guys, would find out about the book and then contact me and go, Hey, I've been working on in five South House second floor, which is why I work there a lot. It says, You know how you're talking about in the shower, how there's a shower and there's a shadow and you'll hear stuff smacking the walls like people are fighting? I said, I just, I've just been dealing with that this last week. And said, and I found your book, and I'm literally reading what I experienced. He said, I thought I was nuts, you know, for seeing this. You know, I haven't talked to anybody else. And it, more and more, more and more, that would happen. And even to the point where people, because I asked somebody, uh, I said, look, I wonder how they are about it, because I was afraid they'd be really ticked off that, that I wrote this book. Sure. There were some people, and there were some people that, you know, they just like, we don't need the publicity. We're dealing with enough without people calling, well, my boy's in there. Get him out of there. I don't want him to get possessed and, you know, or something like that, you know, whatever reason, a way to give them grief about having people inside of a haunted prison. All right. So now we're to the stories. Can you tell us maybe some of your favorite ones about who they think are some of the spirits that are hanging out there? There's a couple guys. There's a guy by the name of uh, Kelly Moss. He was... Kind of a greaser kid, a roughneck guy back in the 50s and always in and out of trouble. He was kind of a thorn in the side of the county that he was in. He was a couple counties up, and it got to the point where he was just had gotten married, and he was having a problem with his father-in-law. He's come up trying to bum bunny off of him. You know, he wasn't working. His wife, well, I don't think was working. So anyway, words were said. Well, he was drunk, and apparently he uh, bludgeoned a guy to death. I can't remember if it was a shovel or a hammer. It was a hammer. Yeah, it was a hammer. I had to remember for a second. And so he beat this man to death in his kitchen and took off. So he fought uphills and tried to come up with any way to put the brakes on his execution. But anyway, he was finally executed in 1962. And he is one of the big ones that they say still haunt it because he swore down I didn't do the murder. And he says, if you guys if you guys do this, I will never leave this place. I will haunt this place till the last brick is taken down. And a lot of people said they've seen them. A lot of people said they felt them. A lot of people said that they've they'll go make a round and they'll come back. And if they have cords and stuff or whatever for the janitors to use, you know, to run buffers, they'll come back and it'll be knotted up six, seven different spots and just like and I'm talking like a 45 second to a minute round down a walk and back up. Now, that is amazing, because you know? first of all, to even have that happen just when you wind it up and throw it into a closet, generally it's right. not going to wind up like that. But to have it happen that quickly? Right. Well, and that's the thing. The guy, and it's almost like he was just doing it just to screw with them. So we'd have a, st- a lot of stuff like that. We've seen people, uh, or people have talked about having seen him leave out of the back of Three Cell House, which is, there was a kind of like a little death tunnel 
which I didn't know that until kind of after the fact, until after I'd already left the prison, where they would execute the guys. They would take them down under, uh, because it was on called 15 Walk, it was Death Walk, and there was a tunnel. They would take the body out so no one in the cell house saw this executed person. And just like in the movie The Green Mile, you know, they would turn the power up to the cell houses so when they put the juice to them, it wouldn't flicker out. So no one – they were thinking, oh, well, we're going to fool these guys. They're not going to know when it's going to happen, but obviously they did. And they said he would come out of there, and he would sort of be looking up there and poking his head up back and forth. And then if you notice him, he'd kind of wave at you, and then he'd sort of turn around, and he would fade out like he was taken off. And that happened to several people. I'd, I'd had a lot of situations where I'd walk, be working in a wall stand, and they would have like the spiral staircase type stuff, and you're hearing guys – taking those heavy, hard steps coming up the steps. And what's so weird is back in the day, they didn't wear like rubber boots. They'd had like wooden heeled boots, you know, and they actually had to get rid of them because people could hollow out the inside of those hills and stick a key or stick a weapon or stick drugs or anything. But back in the day, they all had wooden heeled shoes. So you'd have that kind of clop sound coming up it. And uh, I'd had that happen before to the point where at first, I thought an officer or a sergeant or somebody was screwing with me. Midnight shift, it gets boring. And so these guys would try to sneak around, make sure you're not a, not asleep. And at first, I thought it wasn't that. And I called another wall stand and said, who's around my wall stand? I keep hearing banging on my door. It's rattling, but I'm not looking down. I'm not seeing anybody there. So there's nobody there. And I was like, maybe it's the wind, right? So then I'm hearing like it opens and slams. I look down there and said, the door's not opening. Another 15 minutes, I'm sitting there. And then I hear somebody moving up the steps, up like up in the higher end of the steps, like where I'm at. So I don't know if it's somebody snuck in. I didn't see them. They're hiding in a corner somewhere. So I drew my weapon on them, and there was nobody there. I turned the lights on the entire cell and the entire wall stand, and there was no one there. And it wasn't until I said, look, I'm just doing my job. I have no problem with you. If you're passed on, I guarantee you have family waiting for you. There's no reason to do this. So go lay down, which is something they say in prison. Go lay down. I've got this. And it stopped. And, and I thought I was going nuts, and I was on a, on a phone with a friend of mine across the way in another stand because, well, thank God for phones or you'd be asleep uh, on midnight. So, And I said, the dangest thing happened to me. I could have sworn I heard somebody run up the top of the steps, and he said, well, if you're crazy, I heard it too. I heard the same thing, and then I heard you jump up and pull that gun. Oh, wow. Um, so the cool thing about that is for us especially, we always, anytime you share an experience, then you're like, okay, I just didn't imagine that. Right. And that's the thing, because, you know, uh, I've always been a night owl, but it was one of those things that you have to second guess yourself or you're not. It was so weird because I was working a job. I wasn't trying to be a researcher then. But any time that I was met with any sort of experience like that, I, you know, I went through it and I tried to break it down logically and use a scientific method and say, OK, is this possible? What are their explanations? And then when you have other people to collaborate what you heard and what you seen, and what you smelled or anything like that, especially when. If it's a thing of not going, oh, I smelled this. Did you smell this? Oh, yeah. I would always be like, did you notice anything, hear anything, smell anything, whatever? And they'd go, oh, I smelled pipe tobacco or I smelled, which I've smelled that before in certain places. And that type of thing. When it's not only just going, oh, yeah, I heard a noise. Anybody can do that. But it was like very specific sound or whatever tactile sensation going on. It sort of uh, it legitimizes it. And and, and thank God it didn't happen to me a lot because I may not have worked there for 10 years. But the experiences I had was enough that it made me a believer. When you have people obviously talking about they're in a, maybe in their office and they're doing paperwork and they're seeing reflections of people behind them. Okay, which, okay, what? That could be a play on nerves. But then when you feel something reach out from behind you and latch onto your shoulder and you see a, a reflection in, in a mirror in front of you, to where you jump up and the officer turns around and spins like with a flashlight into a wall 
shattering the flashlight against the wall. He hit it so hard because he thought there's an inmate getting ready to hurt him. And these are not kooks. You know, these are solid, stoic more often than not, serious-minded men. It takes a lot for those guys to have faith in you. That's why when I put the book together, I did my dankness to make sure it wasn't – I didn't want to jump scare. I'm, I'm not trying to make a Hollywood film. I'm, I'm trying to document these, people, these people's experiences as true as I, as I can. And if it was a frightening, visceral fear these people had, I put it down because some people dealt with it, and they quit that next morning. I've had people call and go, yep, I'm done. Come get me. Wow. So it was that bad that they were like, I'm done with this. Right. Well, I mean, some people would have marks on them. Some people would have scratches. Some people felt like they were being choked. I Women, think I would probably you know, be done then as well. It's just like a giant battery that keeps absorbing this darkness. And that's not to say that there was not light in there. A lot of those guys would, like say in woodshop, would work and make these beautifully ornate dollhouses, three, four, five-story dollhouses, and donate them to children's hospitals. And they would use like teak wood and all kinds of really high-end wood. So don't, please don't let me make it seem like it's all nightmares and because that would be disingenuous of me. It's just – there's just that flip side. There's that duality there. There's not a whole lot of difference between inmates and officers when it comes to the supernatural because whatever that energy is doesn't discriminate. No, it doesn't. So when you talk about we have a percentage that would be residual and a percentage that's intelligent, and then we have this other grouping over here that would be considered something that is more dark or evil. Do you feel like there's something in that prison that is not necessarily a spirit of maybe somebody else who'd been trapped there, but maybe something that's been attracted to like the energy that you're talking about that a prison just naturally creates. I mean, you don't want it to be a positive place to be. So does it seem like it's attracted anything negative to it? I believe to a point, yes and no. Okay, yes, darkness attracts darkness and negativity breeds negativity. And and yes, if, oh man, to use like an old Southern explanation, you know, you lay with the dogs, you get fleas. That's how it is. You play with certain things and that's even true of this of, of investigating i do think that just because of the way the the whole build like i said again it was built on inmate labor there's been multiple deaths rapes homicides there's arson people's been burnt to death people's been poisoned people's hung themselves people's been hung you're going to draw out the darkest elements in whatever it is and it's going to stay there as long as that that's like that i just think it's just a really bad place to be now, you did talk, obviously, there's a death row there, and so there was the hall where they would put the bodies. Is there a cemetery on the property, on the grounds anywhere? Okay, there is. To give you a generalized layout, you have the inside main fencing. Okay, you have a X amount of series of fencing. You have the main, what they call, up on the hill. You have down from that, which is what they call PI, which is prison industries, where they'll make clothing or they'll make garbage bags or the whatever. And it's these guys that do that, and they'll make a little money, but it also goes toward showing that they're using their time positively and they get out quicker. In and behind that, we have facing away from that is the training building, which has where officers would be shooting, doing their weapons qualifications with handguns, mini-14, shotguns, that kind of stuff. And in behind that, like directly behind all that mess, is what they what is basically a potter's field. And that is for the indigent inmates that neither had family or their family didn't want to claim them. It's on the top of a little ridge, which is called Pea Ridge. The area where they're actually buried in, it's called Vinegar Hill. 
the old wives tales said is you know there were such mean bitter folks that when the rain ran through there the water the what came off of it was vinegar and yeah there's that's up there it, up until recently it wasn't very well kept i think the new warden may have took some uh, steps to make it a little bit better but it used to be really in bad shape and i actually had had a story where there was a, a kid from uh, a local college town murray kentucky which is about 45 minutes or so south from us toward mayfield and going down that way he was a uh, do you know what parkour is where people like run in the city and like say if there's a a fence they'll kind of run up it and then jump up on top of the building and run across that and jump down it's like hiking but it's different because they'll be jumping over all this other stuff he was really big into that and he's from that area and uh he's actually you know a professional guy now but this has happened some years back and he was down there visiting his family on the lake because this is very much that's what it's about you know this area we don't have the beach we don't have that we have the lakes and so they would go out and water ski and all that good stuff that comes with the lake life they uh his cousin had a house it had an a deck overlooking it and so anyway he was down there and they were talking and says you know we should really do a night hike you know it's i've never done it down here and uh, you know i do it in murray all the time and and they got all these walking trails and and then one of them says you know we should go up check out vinegar hill you know and he's like oh man i you know i forgot all about that old place so they decided to go up there and do it and you can only get so far you have to drive which this is state property do not do this and they would come in on through other people's property as far as they could drive and then they had to hike in and they wanted to just go up there and see the old gravestones and it was interesting right so they're going through there and there it starts storming somewhere so they brought some extra stuff. So they had to hunker down for a little bit. They kept hearing stuff moving around. And, and so uh, it was like they were not for sure what that is. So anyway, the storm breaks enough. And says, you know, what? I don't know what it is, but let's gather this stuff. We're going to go. We're close enough to that. We're closer to this than we are back where the sounds are coming from is by our truck. We'll go to the graveyard, wait till first light, then we'll head back. So they're going through there. They keep hearing stuff. They keep hearing stuff pacing around them like it's tracking them. Anyway, long story short, they can't find it. They see something that looks like more like a less like a dog man and more like i'm not sure if you know what a hellhound is uh yes. very 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 large very ferocious looking like mastiff looking dog with with just piercing eyes and almost completely black it's more of a it's more of a shadow than it is any definitive features they see something like that on this narrow path behind them so they're just cutting off running through the woods trying you know by, get knocked down with tree limbs and all this mess and running and running and running. And they had had flashlights. They'd had a machetes with them to help clear stuff. They dropped all that. So now they're completely blind running in the dark. They, they're making, trying to make their way up this, this ridge. And this thing is probably 35, 45 yards from them. Enough that, I mean, they can really see detail of its, of its face. Finally, claw up this hill. They didn't realize it was almost like a crater that they fall down into. They row, almost get knocked out, slamming into trees. So they're hearing this thing baying up the top of the hill. And so they're like, I, we have nothing to fight them with. So they're trying to grab anything around. They find some of these like rocks, palm-sized rocks. The sun finally starts breaking through about just about that time. They can sort of see its outline. It's, of course, monstrous, big, frothing mouth, all that. As the light starts kind of hitting it, it's like it's going through it, almost like it's transparent. And it's pacing all along the edge, but it and it won't come down there. And then finally it just sort of fades out. The one guy just kept staring. He's almost in shock. And his cousin says, we found it. So what are you talking about? And he, he looked at the rocks in his hand and it said, you know, like an inmate number, blah, blah, blah. And I guess because the ground was still hallowed ground, whatever it was, wouldn't come onto hollow ground. If it's, you know, if it's an old uh, wives tale, 
I don't know. That's just a story I was given. Pretty freaky. So, <laughs> it's super freaky. And, and yeah, I want no part of it. I mean, I, you know, I've encountered some oddball things in the woods, but yeah, I'll, I'll pass on the hellhounds all if I can. I would. There was a guy they called, called, called Old Red. He was an older fella who worked in, there was a infirmary. And again, this is old, old ground. And so there was an infirmary here at one time. And then now there's a yard officer. There had been a tannery shop where they made buggy whips, you know, back a hundred years ago when that was necessary. Well, now it's a laundry. There was a guy who was working in the infirmary, and there was a young kid. He was a little special, a uh, young black guy, and these guys raped him and they ended up putting him in hospital. Well, they scared him pretty pretty well, but they were afraid he was going to say something. So one of them slipped in there, and they tried to set fire to his room. And this is back, you know, this is 40s, 50s. It was pretty lax. I mean, there was a lot of other stuff going on. It just wasn't as secure as it should have been. The guy, Red, ended up pulling not just him, but, you know, all the staff out. If there was any other inmates there and there was hurt, you know, he helped carry him out. I and mean, he was a real hero. But the boy got his legs burnt pretty well. Red got smoke inhalation. And from the burns, he ended up passing away. They had built another infirmary. Officers, uh, actually, one guy that I trained was calling me and he was telling me, he said, Man, I'm getting ready to cut out of here. And I said, uh, some Problems at home? You know, I thought, you know, he had a kid. And I said, No. I said, I am hearing stuff that's off the hook, Asher. I can't, I can't deal with it. And I said, Okay, tell me what you're saying. He would make rounds and, of course, you'd see something kind of down at the end of the hallway and you'd flash your light, nothing would be there. Okay. Then you'd be coming, start to walk onto the walk and you would, as you walk past it, you would hear there's latches that are on a feed door in the hospital so people can't grab you. And there's like padlocks and he would hear them lift and slap, lift up and slap like somebody's checking them. And it did it over and over and over. You know, he would hear that. So he would go through and he'd started, start, he would kind of see them and he'd walk up to him and it would stop. Well, that was enough. You know, that was already enough. Anyway, he went to the kitchen because he's like, I got to get some coffee or something. This is, this is nuts. I'm going to go just sit. I'm done making rounds. I'm through. He's in the kitchen and he's trying to make some coffee. And you ever heard like an old guy, like after he ate some, some beef or steak or something, he'd like suck his teeth, right? Yeah. You know, just like old timers like that. And he was doing that. He heard that right from behind him. He dropped his coffee. He was boom. He was at the door. He's calling me going. Am I crazy when I said, no, 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 no. I said, and I asked him about the, the sounds of it walking behind him. I said, and it sounded like a wooden hill, right? He said, how do you know that? Because I've been there. He says, go tell Red. Say, hey, I got everything here. Why don't you go lay down for the night? I appreciate your help, but we got this. Good job. And he's like, what? I said, dude, just trust me. Okay. And so he went and did that within a few minutes to stop. And the whole vibe changed. And it wasn't anything, and that wasn't even like it was after him. It was doing its job. It was still doing its job after all that time. It didn't know it was done. And like I said, then you'll see stories like that. It's not all the most garish, nightmarish things. Sometimes it's just these quirky little things that, well, you think maybe it's something evil, but it's not. It's something that's trapped there, and it's actually kind of pitiful. Well, Steve, we appreciate you coming on and talking about this with us. I know you mentioned a couple of places that your book is available. It's probably also up on Amazon, I imagine. Yes, ma'am. Well, you can get, like I said, you can also obviously go through SimonSchuster.com. You can go to Amazon and look up Hauntings of the Kentucky State Penitentiary. If I can mention my second book, which is part of a, a series of, you know, Hauntings of series, The Hauntings of the Western Lunatic Asylum, which is about our Western State Hospital, which is in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, just about 20, 30 miles from here. And it was a TB ward, a mental asylum, an orphanage, all that stuff tied into one. And uh, it's still, it's it is as old as a penitentiary as well. So it has its same nightmares of death tunnels and all that type, forced lobotomies and all that kind of crazy, kind of mad scientist type stuff on people. But if people wanted to go to 
and this is all lowercase and together. My middle initial was E. I write under Stevie Azure. But if you wrote all lowercase and together, S-T-E-V-E, put an extra E there, Asher.com. That's my my web page, and you can contact you know go through there to contact me. Uh, go to my Facebook, go to my Twitter, Instagram, all that social media jazz. And I also have a, I should have a link to my YouTube where I try to keep uh, people updated on stuff and post a lot of quirky little stories and things like that. Or like I said, I'm I'm very I'm very approachable. And if anybody wants to check it out, and if I have the ability to get a signed form if if they want it, which still sounds weird to me, they can find it online. And it's also available in ebook formats. And I'm working on a, a third book, which is about a Catholic orphanage uh, up in Morganfield, Kentucky. And the fourth one, if I decide to go ahead and release it, is a, another collection of stories from the penitentiary that I got from all the book signs I would go. And people would just go, well, you didn't mention this and that. And I was like, well, I don't give me the story. And boom, there it is. And now I've got enough for a second book on it. So I'm working on that. And I got to keep I got to keep busy. Well, it keeps you out of trouble. Yeah, it keeps me young, hopefully. That's, that's what I'm telling myself. I ain't convinced myself yet, but I'm trying. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us again, Steve, and maybe we'll be talking to you again in the future. You have a great evening. Yes, thank hey, you. Thank you guys so much, and it was really a, a great honor to meet you guys and get to talk with you. And yeah, any anytime you guys want to talk, I'm here. Okay, sounds fabulous. Have a great night. Yeah, y'all too. God bless. All right, thank bye-bye. You. Bye-bye. Denise, we've had people who have come on with us and told us about the history and hauntings of locations that they have researched But this was Steve who actually worked there and experienced what it was like in all of its forms from the day-to-day jail life to the paranormal stuff going on. I know it was just incredible to interview and talk to him because it was just like he almost took us there through his words. I'm glad he did not physically take us there because that would have been horrid. And I wanted to share an excerpt from his book that details his very first paranormal experience that he had at the jail there. Steve writes, The housewalk officer was making a round when something strange caught my eye on the camera monitors. I leaned in closer toward the small screens. These were just above the illuminated control boards. At first I thought what I saw was an inmate passing another inmate some sort of contraband. I started to radio the walk officer to go check this out. However, something caused me to pause. This was something new to me. Up until this point, I had seen very little that I could call paranormal in nature. Most incidents I'd previously come across I just explained away as due to various weather conditions, different tricks of lighting and such. What followed next was not one of those things. This one transcended the explainable. Moreover, this began my venture into high strangeness because this was my first experience of the Kentucky State Penitentiary's brand of the occult. I was looking at an area known as the Riverwalk, which of course received the name as this was along the riverside of the building. There was a single row of cells beyond a thin security fence there. This location held a chill year-round. The area was even freezing in the mammoth heat of August. Oddly, this area had been the site of several previous paranormal occurrences, or so I'd been told. As I watched, the spectral occurrence began to show itself to me on the small black-and-white screen of the monitor. It was as if there was a faint ripple in the air as the energy, which is the only way I can describe it, appeared. This phenomenon started slowly. The thing, like a pale streak of light, was barely discernible. Then, whatever it was, it gained strength. I widened my eyes in disbelief as I watched this unfold. What was I looking at, I wondered? The image did not appear human. Rather, the thing was a dark shape, one that waxed and then waned, before again swelling more strongly into view once more. I had the distinct impression I was witnessing intelligent movement there. How I could know this, I'm not sure, but this was the feeling I was getting from it. It was as if some form of a sentient shadow was moving along the far end of the empty walk. 
Worse, the feeling I had was that the black form somehow knew I was watching it as well. Although, how could this be? I had no idea. This reminds me of that story. I can't remember which episode we did, but remember that it was as if they were watching a video in another room and they said it was as if whatever was in there knew they were watching through the video. Oh, that's right. Yes. I cannot remember what place that was, but I remember that story. As I continued watching, the vague form twisted and separated into several smaller dark segments before rejoining. The shade, which was the only way I could think of it, hovered there in the dull yellow half-light of the fluorescent overhead lamps that flickered there. I could definitely see the presence of something. The impression I had was that the spirit, or whatever it was, darted in and out of the cell gate fronts. What is this unliving thing up to and what does it want? What the hell, I half-muttered to myself. I had no idea what I was looking at, or rather, I had an idea, but the implications of it scared me, so I just sat there, stunned. The shadow then faded from sight like an ember dying, finally winking out. Interesting stuff going on there. Is the Kentucky State Penitentiary haunted? That is for you to decide. All right, on our next episode, we are bringing you the Jerome Grand Hotel. And this was suggested by our listener, Katie Hickok. So we're looking forward to bringing that to everyone. Denise, we have a ton of stuff coming up because, of course, October is coming, and so it gets crazy around here. One thing we wanted to bring your attention to, we are having our second annual trick-or-treat. This is kind of like a secret Santa thing that we do in the Spooktacular crew, only it's more like a secret victim. Or a secret victimizer. Yes, everybody has a lot of fun with this. If you would like to participate, make sure you join the Spooktacular crew. And then there's the pinned post up there in the group, which has all of the details, how you sign up to do it, and all the rules and all that good stuff. So check that out. Also, if you were going to be in Florida here at the end of September, they're doing Spooky Days in the Park. This is September 22nd and 23rd. It's going to be at the Coronado Springs down at Walt Disney World. Denise and I have already bought our tickets for that, so we'll be down there hanging around and listening to some of the convention speakers and checking out all of the collectibles and a lot of fun stuff down there. So if you're going to be around for that, let us know. We'd love to have you check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And then we did hear from Katrina and the crew. I just found the show and I've been listening to it steady for over a week. About 220 episodes to go. Anyway, I live in Maine and a lot of the older families in Maine, like mine, still share superstitions and ghost stories from the past. I'm also married to a Native American from the Maliseet tribe. I tell you this because I can't remember where this idea came from, but somewhere in my past someone explained child ghosts to me as the idea that ghosts are really a reflection of an extreme emotion, and most often those extreme emotions are felt in death, but sometimes a living person can leave behind a ghost of themselves at a particularly traumatic point in life. Think of Harry Potter horcruxes. It's a portion of a person, but not the whole person. I personally believe in reincarnation and believe that these broken pieces of a person are left behind as they reincarnate and they have the potential to one day reunite with that piece of themselves and make themselves more spiritually whole. But anyway, this is why I believe child ghosts are so particularly scary too. And I just listened to the most recent episode. Perhaps this is why college campuses are so ghostly active. So thank you so much for those views, Katrina. Um, We're always trying to find out like what these things are. I just love all of the theories and it's great stuff. Denise, we were talking about naked ghosts on the Arcadia University episode. 
Yes, we were. Not only did a lot of the listeners have fun with the whole Beaver University female college thing. Thanks to you, Diane. But they had fun with the naked ghost thing. But we actually got some serious commentary from one of our listeners who's an illustrator, Sarah, over on Twitter. And I'm not even going to attempt her last name because, yeah, I'm just not going to do it because I know I'm going to butcher it. But she direct messaged us and said, I listened to your episode about Arcadia University. You brought up the question about naked ghosts. And I know at least of three nude ghosts, two of which I have to look into the locations, but they are all British ghost stories. The first one is located in London at the obelisk called Cleopatra's Needle. This place is said to be a favorite suicide spot. And the haunting is depicted as the nude figure of a man jumping from the railing at the obelisk, but making no splash when hitting the water. Instead, you may hear laughter and moaning. The other two occasions of naked ghosts are one of a lustful naked dude and a group of naked Irish warriors. But I have to look into the details further. Also, there are at least two instances of ghosts appearing as animals. One is of Lady Howard, who murdered her four husbands, and one of her apparitions is that of a black dog. The other one is of her riding in a bone carriage built of the bones of her said four husbands while accompanied by the skeleton of a dog. Ooh, that sounds like a creepy great story. The other ghost is that of a lord or so, who is said to appear in the form of his favorite dog, a black spaniel. I'll have to look later into the details, but these are the ghost stories about nude ghosts from the top of my head. Well, she looked a little bit further into that, and she came up with these other details. I dug out the story about the guy haunting as his black spaniel. This is said to happen at Balachin House in Scotland, and I'm sure I probably said that wrong. He was a major steward. He owned Balachin House at or around 1870, and of course the black spaniel was his favorite dog. I found another naked or rather half-naked ghost. It's said to be the ghost of a crying woman. I don't want to imagine what may have happened that left her crying, half-naked and as a ghost. This haunting appears in Roster, a village in Northumberland. Walls and decorations of some of the houses date from Roman times. Then there's the nude ghost of the called lad, and I probably said that wrong too. It's C-A-U-L-D. In life, he was known as a boy named Robert Skelton, who was a stable hand and who had been murdered by Baron Robert Hilton in 1609. The Baron threw a hay fork at the sleeping boy because the boy forgot to prepare the Baron's horse. Wow, what a great, great guy. The haunting ended when clothes were laid out for the freezing ghost and his bones were properly laid to rest after they were recovered from a nearby pond where the Baron had thrown the body in. This is said to have happened at Hilton Castle, northeastern England. And the story about the naked Irish warriors, this goes back to some battle in 1487 in East Stoke, North Nottinghamshire. They were part of forces from the Earl of Lincoln who attempted to support Lambert Simnel, heir to the throne. Didn't go well as the Irish had only knives and spears as weapons and were eradicated by the army of Henry VII. And naked horny dude appears in Alderley Edge, Cheshire. As said, he is nude and has long hair. When you get closer, he will disappear. What I find rather cowardice, first making broad promises only to disappear, when things may get more serious. My source is an old travel guide to over a thousand places on the British Isles. Well, thank you so much for sharing that stuff, Sarah. We appreciate that. Very interesting. Yes. Then we have a couple of reviews to share from Apple Podcasts. First one is from Blankeny C0213. And this is actually a review that went from four stars to five stars. So thank you for that. History five stars. I love the mix of history, ghost stories, and the oddities. The hosts are funny, and you can tell they put a lot of work into researching a particular place. I'm also in Jacksonville, Florida, and hope to meet up with them on their next adventure. Keep up the good work. I bumped my review up to five stars because these ladies have introduced me to other podcasts, Pleasing Terrors, Hillbilly Horror Stories. 
I would never have heard of them anywhere else. I like that they help so many other independent podcasts. Well, that's one thing we definitely believe in is other independent podcasts. Funny you should mention those two podcasts, Pleasing Terrors and Hillbilly Horror Stories. We are going to be doing an event with both of them in April of 2018 in Louisville, Kentucky. And it has a little something to do with Waverly Sanatorium. So keep your ears peeled for details as we get those put together. It's going to be a great time. Then we have Mad Mac, 1963. History goes bump five stars. This is a quaint, low-key podcast hosted by two gentle ladies that I love listening to. The historical oddities, personalities, and places discussed here are often surprising to me, and they are more well-versed on paranormal topics. They're upbeat and positive, and they never seem to have anything bad to say about anyone. It's refreshing. Well, thank you for that. There is the people who don't use their blinkers in Florida. Sometimes I have bad things to say about them. And then we have the real DG Black, one of my favorites, five stars, and I believe this is David. History Goes Bump is one of my favorite podcasts. Not only is it interesting and well done, Diane and Denise have become like friends. I can't wait to visit with every week. Keep up the good work, ladies. You are appreciated and loved by many. Well, thank you, David. You know, we love you too. And thank you for all of your activity and support in the Spooktacular crew. It is noticed. We want to thank you all for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producer, Amanda Wachuda. And thank you to Helen Walker for your one-time donation. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you.